Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount that we have been in for a number of weeks. I have uh, I've had the opportunity to travel to a number of places in the world with groups of people and particularly when you take a group of people outside the States, maybe to a third world country, it's common in those uh, more remote areas Uh, There is, I should say, a common reaction among groups of people to the general pollution that they encounter in those more undeveloped countries. You are uh, constantly uh, hearing people talk about the the cleanliness, and, and yet they go over there and they encounter the thick smoke smell of burning trash in people's backyards that fill the streets of cities or just the unregulated smog being pumped out by diesel engines, or they go along the canals or the rivers or the beaches that they see literally littered with bottles and trash all over the place, and they're struck by it because we have grown accustomed to living in a relatively clean environment in the United States and in Western society. hasn't always been that way. In fact, it really was not until the Industrial Revolution that, that, that people's consciousness about, about pollution and cleanliness was probably highlighted. Many people believe the first uh, sort of crisis event was the great stink of 1858 in London when uh, all of the people who had flooded into the cities to work in the factories uh, were overrunning the capacity of housing and all of their human waste was being poured out into the streets as it ran off into the River Thames, along with all the effluent of all the factories. One particular summer day in 1858, the stench of the river was so overwhelming, not just from the runoff, but from all of the dead fish uh, in the river, that the people cried out for something to be done, And the uh, government finally uh, took it upon themselves the next year to build the first sewage system in London's history. Actually, a sewage system that they still use today. So it was a very efficient system, apparently, that was built. In America, we were going through uh, sort of similar things with the Industrial Revolution. And uh, as people were crowding into the cities, of course, they were bringing their horses and their Uh, buggies and all of that. Someone estimated in the year 1900, the American cities were populated by uh, as many as three million horses running the streets, which of course brought with them all of their manure and urine that was poured out on the streets every day and uh, left such a foul kind of uh, odor and, and, and foul quality to the air. People were so thrilled with the invention of the automobile so that they could finally begin breathing fresh air again. Of course, that didn't last long, right? (laughs) Fifty years later, unregulated automobile exhaust would clog cities with massive amounts of smog. In 1952, London once again had the great smog, which filled air pollutants not only from automobiles, but from... um, effusive burning coal throughout the city and from December 5th, December 9th in 1952, winds 
at a standstill caused the city to be engulfed in a smog that reduced visibility to really just a few yards. People believe that, uh, or scientists believe that 4,000 people died of lung disease that year directly related to the smog. All of it led to the Clean Air Act of 1956 in London, of course, followed up in America by the Clean Air Act in 1963, and then later in 1972, the Clean Water Act, so that now we've reached a point where we just sort of take uh, our cleanliness for granted. And, and in fact, to pollute is a, sort of a cultural offense. If we see someone throwing a bottle on the ground or or intentionally dumping something into our lakes or our rivers that's going to be polluted. It's a societal scandal. We've, we've, uh, we've grown accustomed to this. But pollution, while it may not be such an issue in our society, it remains a serious issue in our hearts. It remains a serious issue in a biblical sense, in a spiritual and theological sense, The issue of pollution and impurity and defilement. The Bible places great emphasis on this issue, calling us to purity, calling us to an untaintedness. In fact, so much of the Old Testament was designed to help Israel get this very point. On a regular basis, to always be reminded with laws of purity and impurity and laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness, not so much because of hygiene, the concern was not just simply having clean bowls and clean cups or clean clothing or any of that outward stuff. All of these rituals and all of these laws were outward realities intended to communicate inward truths. They were intended to represent the inner man or what we might call the heart of man. And the message was clear or it was supposed to be clear, Israel had a polluted heart. They had a defiled heart. They had an unclean heart. And obviously, it wasn't just Israel. Israel was the recipient of God's law. They were the ones who had God's word to guide them into this truth. But what God was showing them about themselves is true of every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, who's ever born in this world, we are born with polluted hearts. We're born with unclean and impure and defiled hearts. And what we need desperately is to be cleansed, is to be cleaned up, is to be purified. Now that's the focus as we come back to the Sermon on the Mount this morning and to the Beatitudes. It's the focus this morning particularly on the fifth beatitude of Jesus where he tells us in verse 8 of Matthew 5, blessed are the poor, excuse me, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is Jesus's fifth opening statement, fifth what we call the beatitude, his fifth beatitude of this sermon, which if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you understand was prompted because Jesus was seeing crowds that were gathering to him at the end of chapter 4 coming for the superficial benefit of just his healing ministry. They didn't have a genuine concern in him. They didn't have a genuine concern in his gospel, in his message, or in the truth. They were looking for the temporal benefit that might come to them by way of the healing. And Jesus, understanding all this, was concerned 
He was concerned that his disciples would misinterpret the crowds, that they wouldn't understand what's, what the dynamics are, what's going on. And so he calls them aside to himself and gives them this sermon, this message, to try to help them understand fundamentally the nature, the true nature of a genuine believer, the difference between a, a genuine believer and a pseudo-believer, so that they wouldn't misinterpret what's going on around them. And in the course of this, of course, he gives us these, these beatitudes, which form a, a kind of a sequence of steps that you might say the natural progression that someone would follow on their pathway to God. In the beginning, as we've seen with poverty of spirit, which is actually the gateway into heaven, recognizing your bankrupt spiritual state, followed by mourning and grief over that sinful state, whereby God comforts you with his forgiveness, all of that leading you to sort of a self-emptying of your self-absorption or your self-seeking, which Jesus characterizes as a general meekness that comes over you. And all of that emptying then leads to four results. First of all, you hunger and you thirst to be filled. You've been emptied of yourself, but now you want to be filled with righteousness. Secondly, understanding the great mercy that you need you in turn are ready to show that same mercy to other people. And then thirdly, our focus today, there's a newfound purity in your heart. The pollution, the defilement, the uncleanness is removed. And suddenly, you're flooded with an unmixed and pure love for God. You actually... You actually see God, Jesus says. Now, we want to we dive into this the same way we have in the weeks past. We want to understand it the best that we can. And to do that, we're going to follow our same pathway by just taking a moment to consider the purity of heart expounded and then taking a look, hopefully, at a helpful example of this kind of purity a little bit later. But we can begin just by thinking once again about the exposition and the explanation uh, the expounding of what purity of heart really means. And as I mentioned earlier, to understand this, you have to understand all this Old Testament background. That's why it was given. That's why the law was given. It was saturated with these regulations regarding ritual impurity. Those things that would make you um, unable or would restrict you from going to the temple and offering the offerings or participating in the public worship because you were ritually impure. But all of those things were just outside pictures, outside images, outside emblems. They were intended to point to inner problems of impurity. God had always intended Israel to understand this. That their real need was not to avoid certain things that they touched or certain things that they eat. What they really needed was to be cleansed on the inside. As Jesus would say to them so many years later, it's not the cleaning of the outside of the cup that matters, but it's the defilement on the inside that's the problem. In fact, when he began his ministry, literally hundreds of years, more than a thousand years, Israel had been under this law, hearing from the prophets and heard it, hearing from the, uh, the, the teachers of the law, they still didn't get it. As a matter of fact, they had compounded the problem. 
they'd actually taken God's rituals and they would added on they had added on to them all of their own ritual traditions so that by the time Jesus begins his ministry he was being criticized by the Pharisees no longer just for uh, what they perceived to be his violations of the law but even his violation of their traditions in Matthew 15 they criticized Jesus for not properly or ritually washing his hands before he touches food and he responds to them in verse 17 he says do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it is expelled but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person for out of the heart he says come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So it's so important to understand what Jesus is saying here. He says this defilement that you're so concerned about, it doesn't come from outside of you. It's not something that is a product of your environment. It's not the things that you touch. It's not the things that you eat. It's not something that comes from the outside. It comes from, he says, inside of you. It's not, in other words, a physical issue. It is a spiritual issue. Out of the heart, out of the heart come the defilements. Out of the heart come the evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes the murder. Out of the heart comes the anger, the sexual immorality, the the, the thievery. The slander, the malice, this is the source. The source is within. The source, the pollution is within. The uncleanness is within. You may think that it's about your circumstances. You may think it's about your environment and you may want to have something to blame. But Jesus is telling you, you have nothing to blame but your own heart. In fact, earlier he had said in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You can tell on the outside what the inner DNA of the tree is, what kind of tree it is. Because the source of the fruit is the DNA. The source of the fruit is the type of tree. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying there, in your heart there is this abundance. The word is parasuma. It means an excess, a surplus. He's kind of picturing the heart of men and women as being so compacted, so full, just jammed full of wickedness and uncleanness that the, the sort of release valve for that is your mouth. And so when you open your mouth, all of that uncleanness comes forth. That's sort of just coming out of this, gushing out of this packed, full heart. It's the spillway. Where, first of all, the lies and the slander and the anger and the malice, not to mention the fornication and the theft and the murder, That stuff is coming from within you. It's showing the pollution. It's showing the filthiness. It's showing the impurity. 
Of course, when Jesus is saying hard, he's using it in the same sense that you find it throughout Scripture. It's not primarily what we think of as a heart, which is maybe the center of your emotional self. The heart is the whole inner man, the entire self, all of your, all of your intellect, all of your will, as well as your emotions. The Bible speaks about a man thinking with his heart or the thoughts of his heart being continually evil. So, so when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's looking at all of this stuff, all of your thoughts, all of your intellect, all of your will, all of your emotions. And so what Jesus is saying is all of that stuff is polluted. All of that stuff is impure. All of that stuff is defiled. Your reasoning, your rational capabilities your will, your motives, your decision-making, your desires, your emotions, all of that stuff is polluted. That's why Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord says in the next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. You don't even know your own heart. It's desperately sick. It is corrupted. It's pure, impure. It's polluted. It's filthy. It is repugnant. It's as repugnant as any canal that's just jammed full of, of old used tissue and bottles and cartons. And you'd never think about diving into something like that. Your heart is just as polluted, just as corrupted, just as filthy. And the evidence is there. It's not the things outside of you that are making you impure. In fact, it is you that's making them impure. It is you that is corrupting and defiling everything around you. You're smudging it. You're smearing it. You're corrupting it. You're polluting it. All of your relationships, all of your friendships, all of your pursuits, it's all being polluted by your heart. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're, they're defiled, he says. On the inside, they're defiled. Everything on the inside is polluted, and so everything on the outside is polluted. If your inside is impure, you're going to make everything you touch, everything you do, defiled. If your inside's rotten, you're going to make everything outside of you rotten. You're going to make your friendships rotten. You're going to make your language and your conversation rotten. You're going to make your pursuits rotten. Paul says this runs so deep, even your mind and your conscience is defiled. He's trying to show you the depth of this. It affects your intellect and your mind. It affects your reasoning capabilities. It affects your desires. It affects your judgment. It affects your decision-making, your discerning faculties, your conscience, your motives. All of it is polluted. All of it is impure. All of it is defiled. So much so that Isaiah, 
In Isaiah 64 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So even whenever you try to do something good, it becomes impure. Even when you try to do something right, it becomes defiled. Even when you try to do something religious, it is repugnant to God. You make it impure because you have an impure and a polluted heart. Patrick Fairborn says, they have a fountain of pollution which spreads itself over and infects everything about them, their food and drink, their possessions, their employment, their comforts, their actions. All are in the reckoning of God tainted with iniquity because they're putting away from them that which alone has the soul regenerating and cleansing efficacy. That is God. See, the real issue is what's happening inside of you. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, everything they touch is defiled. Everything they do is defiled. All of their religiosity is sickening to God. When they lift up their voices in song, God closes His ears. When they lift up their hands in prayer, He hides His eyes. Which really highlights the chief impact of your impure heart is it separates you from God. It separates you from God. And no amount of good deeds can bridge the gap because your good deeds are filthy and repugnant to God. They are impure like your heart is impure. They're tainted by your, by your same pollution. You're polluting everything. You're corrupting everything. And you're just making everything around you less pure. And all of it is just building a bigger and bigger wall between you and God. That's why David, as Richard read earlier in Psalm 24, that's why David asked, who will ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, who doesn't swear deceitfully. He is the one who will receive blessing from the Lord. Calvin highlights this impurity that causes men and women, he says, quote, to put craftiness in the place of purity is the greatest virtue. Hence, those persons are commonly considered happy who, whose ingenuity is exercised in the successful practice of deceit who gain clever advantage over others by indirect means, end quote. So, so you're congratulating yourself. You're boasting in yourself because you can put on a front, you can put on a show by your own craftiness. You feel like you can avoid any kind of negative impacts. You can deceive other people. You fool other people. You begin to think that you are getting away with it. You might even be fooling yourself into thinking that you're fooling God. But as, as God told Samuel all the way back in 1 Samuel, man may look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And He knows your filthiness. I mean, it comes out of your mouth. The spill valve is opened up almost every day. 
The evidence is there. It's right in front of you. It's in front of others. But even if it wasn't, even if you have become adept at your deceit, God's not fooled. He's not fooled. And David says, you will never enter into the presence of God. You can't ascend his hill. You can't dwell in his holy place. You can't be before God. Because God's righteousness won't allow it. You might have some good works and you might have some religious deeds, but you're not fooling him. Those are tainted. Those are repugnant. You might begin thinking that you can be religious enough and get it all down and fool the people around you, but you'll never fool God. His, his heart, uh, his eyes see your heart and that separates you and it keeps you out of heaven. And one of the chief characteristics of God is his purity. Habakkuk says that God's eyes are purer than to see evil and he cannot gaze upon wrong. So he's not going to tolerate your polluted heart. He's not going to establish his kingdom in all of its pristine beauty and purity and then allow you to bring in your corrupted and evil and wicked heart, your polluted heart, that starts to pollute everything around it. He's not going to allow you to come in with that and mess up his kingdom. He's not going to tolerate it. So because of your foul and impure heart, your deceptive and polluted heart, you will not enter God's holy dwelling. You'll never enter into his kingdom. What you need is the same thing everyone else needs. Is you need someone to purify your inner man. You need someone who can come in and cleanse your mind and your heart, your motives and your desires, your logic and your decision-making, your emotions, your reasoning, everything. You need someone who can come in and clean that junk up. Solomon asked in Proverbs 20, who can do that? Who can say I've made my heart pure. I've made my heart pure. I'm cleansed from sin. And he understood the dilemma. I mean, if even my filthy, even if my best deeds are like filthy rags before God, even if I did all the best efforts that I could, and even if I prayed, and even if I sang songs and attended church and did all that stuff, even if I did all that, I can't clean up my life because everything I try, God rejects. Everything I do, He looks at as filthy. He's already rejected me. How can I make my heart pure, Solomon asked. The answer is you can't. You cannot do it. You can't make yourself pure. You can't clean up your filth. You can't, you can't uh, take away all the pollution. You could as soon clean up all the filth in the oceans of the world. I read this week that uh, in just a few years, we're supposed to have 410,000 tons of plastic floating in our waters around the world. You could sooner clean up all of that in total, then you could clean up your own heart. You can't do it. Which is exactly what Israel was told from the very beginning. 
you have defiled and corrupt hearts and there's nothing you can do about it. But God declared that he would punish Israel because of their pollution, because of their corruption, because of their defilement. He would scatter them in exile around the world. And the Lord says in Deuteronomy 30, he'll bring them back from all the lands where he scattered them. And verse 6, he says, Then the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you might live. Hundreds of years later, he's still giving that promise through the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, he tells Israel, through the new covenant, he says, I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I'll be your God and I will deliver you from all your impurity. This is really what you need. I mean, you are, you are drowning in a sea of your own impurity. You're drowning in the sea of your own impure and corrupt and polluted heart. And what you need is someone to draw you out. What you need is someone to cleanse your heart to give you a brand new, purified heart. And when that happens, as Paul says again in Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure. To the pure all things are pure. That is to say that when God purifies you on the inside, everything becomes pure. Your deeds, which previously were repugnant to God, your good deeds, your efforts now are recognized by God. In fact, they are the, the delight of God. He smiles on the deeds of the righteous, we're told. He actually rewards you for all of those things because now you're doing them out of a, a proper motive. Now you're doing them out of a purified heart. Now you're doing them as unto God in a genuine and sincere way. And God is taking joy in those things. The psalmist says he sees the deeds of the righteous because they are pure. He looks on the righteous with favor. So when the Lord comes in and gives you a new heart, a purified heart, you are blessed, which is exactly what Jesus says in the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why is that? Because they are communing with God. They see God, he says. Their consciences have been cleansed, their intellect, their, their mind and their motives have been renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because they mourned and they grieved over the impurity and the pollution that was, that was gushing out of their, their mouth and all over their lives. They recognized that they were polluting everyone and everything around them. And they mourned and they grieved. And God has now given them a hunger and thirst for righteousness that he's filled. And he's filled them with a purified heart. So that's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. That's what he's talking about. 
He's talking about the person whose heart has been touched by God and had all of those impurities removed, reborn, if you will. Well, if that's true, let's take a moment then and just see if we could find some example of this. Well, really, I mean, it shouldn't be hard because every believer experiences this. Every believer is purified like this. Because of the new covenant, every believer receives a purified and cleansed heart. That was the promise of Ezekiel. And so really you could look at any believer and tell their story of transformation, how they went from a polluted life, from a corrupt and impure life to a life of purity. Because they were born with the same heart with which you were born. They were born in the same condition and yet God touched their hearts and everything became pure. And so you could find ample examples of this, but I want to focus in specifically on one individual that Jesus talks about in John chapter 1. It's one of the few that he specifically cites for the purity that he has inside of him. John chapter 1, when Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist down in Judea and he was preparing to return to Galilee. He had been gathering his disciples. You remember he called Andrew and Peter uh, first of all and then later called Philip. And then Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And in verse 45, he tells him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip had heard him teach, he had been listening to him, no doubt expound the Old Testament, expound the prophets, talk about how all of those things pointed to Jesus, and he explained all these things in Philip's hearing, and Philip's eyes were open, he saw the reality of what Jesus was not only teaching from the law, but he saw the reality of what Jesus was living in front of them. And he recognized that this all fulfills exactly what the Old Testament said about the Messiah, And so he believes and he goes and immediately calls his friend Nathaniel, who we usually refer to as Bartholomew. But he goes and calls Nathaniel and tells him that this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, is the Messiah. Now Nathaniel responds the way most people in that day would have responded, with disdain. Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good, he says in verse 36, Verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that dead-end village at the top of the hill, just a group of a few sort of common laborers who make their way down to the Gentile Sephoris every day and ply their trade on its pagan temples and pagan structures. Can anything good come out of that kind of place? And, And then... This, this man, Joseph, a carpenter with no lineage, no titles, no pedigree, you're telling me that that's the Messiah? I mean, he was skeptical, to say the least. But Philip says to him, come and see. Just come and see. And so in verse 47, as Nathaniel's making his way 
to Jesus to find out what all the fuss is about, maybe to kind of question him on the Old Testament, to find out what he really knows about the Messiah. As he's making his way towards Jesus, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. I'm not suggesting that Nathaniel's incapable of telling a lie. He's not saying that Nathaniel is somehow perfect or he's never never told a lie. He's talking about his heart. He's talking about the purity of his heart. And he sees him and he says, Behold, there's somebody there's somebody who's sincere. There's somebody who isn't playing games. A Jew whose devotion to God has no deceit, no hypocrisy, no duplicity, no phoniness. I mean, really, if you were the one walking up to Jesus that day, is that what he would have said about you? Now, there's a person with no deceit. Now, there's a person who has a pure heart. There's a person who what you see is what you get. There's a person who doesn't have hypocrisy. Nathaniel was in a nation full of pretenders, self-righteous, religious pretenders who are all concerned with nothing more but putting on a religious show through all of their rituals to impress the people around them. But Jesus comments on how rare it is. He found one in this Nathaniel who is a true-hearted Israelite, a genuine Israelite. And he knows this because he can see your heart. In fact, when Nathaniel comes up, Nathaniel asks him, how do you know me? We've never met. We've never talked. How, do you, how can you say this about me? And Jesus answers him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Which is sort of a subtle way of just telling him, I can see things that don't require eyes. I can see things beyond what the eyes can see. And I can see your heart. People might put on a show, they might put on a facade, but you're not going to fool God. This is a true Israelite. The kind that Paul describes in Romans 2 when he says a Jew is not one merely outwardly nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Here is a true believer. A true Jew. One whose whose heart has been touched by God and cleansed of all of its facade. And Philip, of course, excuse me, Nathaniel, he doesn't need to hear anymore. He doesn't need to hear an explanation of the Old Testament. He responds right there in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. You're the Messiah. He saw God. He had his eyes opened. He understood the truth. He believed. He was experiencing What Jesus promised as a blessing, he recognized the reality of the Son of God. He acknowledged the truth and yielded to him. 
which is one of the results of the new heart. You remember Jeremiah 31 says, this new covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, I'll put my law within their hearts, I'll write it, I'll put my law within them, I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall one have to teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. No more need to for, for, for Philip to go grab Nathaniel and say, come, come and see, because he sees already. He already knows. No need for you to take your children and tell them over and over again, know the Lord, know the Lord, because they'll actually know him. No need for you to take your spouse and your friends and your coworkers, your parents or whoever it might be. Because when God gives this new heart, They develop this relationship. They know God at an intimate level. They have been given, you might say, an understanding with the eyes of their heart being enlightened. And so they see God and they know God. And ultimately, one day in his kingdom, they'll see him face to face. Michael de Montague said, I find no quality so easy to counterfeit as religious devotion. You can congratulate yourself all you want about how, you know, you keep everyone fooled, how you keep them at bay with your games. What you're doing isn't difficult. Pretending to be religious, that's not hard. You're not so clever. Plenty of people are doing that all the time, putting on displays of devotion when there's really not anything behind it. Your heart is just as corrupt. Your heart is just as polluted. It's just as impure. It's just as filthy. The whole facade of appearances that you're putting on, if people just dig below the surface, that's what they would find is they would find pollution impurity, corruption. And it's, in, it's, it's impacting everything around you. It's polluting everything around you. It's polluting your life. It's polluting your friendships. It's polluting your dreams. It's polluting your happiness. And it has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with your environment. That's not where the problem comes from. The problem comes from your heart. It's impure. It's defiled. It's unbelieving. But Jesus says that if you reach the place where you see that, you mourn over that, you see the impoverished poverty and pollution of your heart, and you confess that to the Lord. He will not only fill you with righteousness, He will fill you with purity. He will fill you with purity. Your heart and mind, your motives and purposes, everything will be made new by the power of the Spirit. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the power of the gospel that can rescue us draw us out of our pollution, cleanse our life and our heart and make us new.
Lord, we do not battle against you. We freely say that our polluted heart polluted our lives. That our filthy and dirty heart made us dirty and everything around us dirty. But we're thankful that you give a cleansing answer. We're so thankful for the cross of Christ that took all of our impurities so that we can be made clean. I pray that you would sprinkle your cleansing water on every heart here today. Cleanse them for the sake of your gospel, your name, your glory, your kingdom. May you make them new. May you make them pure so that everything they do is pure and all done to your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.